according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 9 this morning as we're going to handle two episodes back to back. Episode 31 and 32 in the Galilean ministry. By the time we get to episode 33, we're back to a uh, incident that is recorded by more than one gospel. For these two, however, we are looking at only the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure each one of us is equipped to handle the Word of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your Word and the privilege we have to assemble together. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our study. And Father, a reminder of things that we've studied previously that relate to the Gospel of Matthew and the emphasis on kingship with the Son of David. Father, I pray as we examine these principles again this morning that our understanding would be reinforced and our appreciation for the uh, the multiple plans in which you have brought forth uh, a purpose and direction for your earthly people as well as a purpose and destiny for your heavenly people. And we thank you for the clear understanding we have in Scripture of uh, of both plans and program for both Israel and the church. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us this morning, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 9. We have concluded in our previous session, episode 30, the raising of Jairus' daughter, and we see that here in this chapter uh, from verses 18 down through verse 26. If If you have your harmony handy or you're looking at your harmony, this is at a point where we've kind of been running through a series of events through the Synoptic Gospels. That is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the Synoptic Gospels. As a matter of fact, we've had a rather lengthy gap since the last time we've even touched the uh, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was last featured in uh, incident number 12 in the Galilean ministry. So here we are in 31 and 32. We've covered uh, really 20 uh, incidents or 20 episodes, uh, 20, I don't know what we're calling these, but uh, uh, I guess incidents is, is a good term, in the, uh, in the, in the uh, chronology of the Gospels. Remember, we're trying to tackle all of the episodes, all of the stories that are told in the life of Christ and compiling them together in a chronological sequence. So if we want to think of these as incidents or episodes or chapters and so forth, we can certainly do that. Well, we've been 20 now since... Uh, we've been in the Gospel of John. We've been focusing mainly on the synoptics. Well, here at this point, though, uh, Mark and Luke drop off, and we're limited to Matthew for these next two episodes. Uh, for the next episode, we get back to Mark again. Luke does not feature the second rejection in Nazareth. And then uh, then we'll have three in a row that will be covered by the synoptics, including uh, we got the feeding of the 5,000 coming up, which is episode number 36, one of the few events in the life of Christ that actually is covered by all four Gospels. There aren't that many episodes where all four Gospels will feature it, but the feeding of the 5,000 
is one of those, and we have that coming up here very quickly. Remember that the feeding of the 5,000 is a Passover event for which he does not go to Jerusalem. It's the first Passover that he misses, that is, that he refuses to go to Jerusalem. He stays uh, away, and that is the one-year uh, countdown. That's, that begins the one-year countdown to his crucifixion, because he will be crucified on the following Passover. So we've covered almost two and a half years at this point of his ministry, and there will be one final year to go that will uh, take us through the rest of this study. All right. As we examine it here in Matthew 9, uh, down through verse 26, um, they're laughing at him, and he says that she's not dead, she's just asleep. And when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. And we discussed last week, we took the time last week to detail particular aspects of humility and uh, uh, self-promotion and how Christ uh, pursued humility and rejected self-promotion. And uh, we saw that as the pattern of his ministry. All right, now moving on to verse 27, as Jesus went out from there, went on from there, two blind men followed him crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind man came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. And as usual, he gets ignored. Uh, as uh, They went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. Very quickly then, verse 32, this next episode, as they were going out, a mute, or a moot, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the moot man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been done in Israel. Well, where have they been for the last two years? A whole lot of this has been going on. Uh, ever since the, the baptism event at the River Jordan, uh, from the point forward of his ordination as a spirit-indwelled Old Testament prophet, there's been a, quite a bit of this going on. And uh, even prior to this, the miracles of the Old Testament prophets were a testimony to their legitimacy and so forth. It's interesting, when they say nothing like this has ever been seen before, it really reflects a lack of their own perspective. But the Pharisees were saying he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And uh, that becomes rather typical of their scorn and of their rejection of what he was doing. All right, we're going to tackle this, both episodes here this morning, and really four overall points with some subpoints. First of all, with a context for the episode, point one, following the raising of Jairus' daughter, two blind men sought out the son of David. Following the raising of Jairus' daughter. These episodes are coming in rapid fire. Following the raising of Jairus' daughter, two blind men sought out the son of David. They actually were able to see much more clearly than many of the crowds around them, which is interesting. Uh, that, second, that group that observed the second miracle uh, saw less than these two saw, and yet these guys were blind. Interesting how they found him. Interesting how they knew where he was in Jairus' house. Interesting how they were waiting for him to exit from that house. There's, uh, there's a lot in this text that leaves really more questions than answers, but when we notice just simply in the, in the details on this that uh, 
we're told in verse 27, as Jesus went on from there. So there being Jairus' house and being where that miracle was. Remember when he first returned back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, there were crowds and crowds and crowds that were limiting his movement. And Jairus had to actually seek him out and bring him to his house, kind of ushering him through the, uh, through the crowds and so forth. So you wonder if these blind men were there at the beach, if they were there at that scene and had to follow along uh, through the incident where the, the woman with the hemorrhage reached out and touched him. Uh, through the uh, uh, waiting while he went inside Jairus' house and came back out. Uh, being blind the way they were, you wonder uh, how welcome they would have been in uh, the uh, synagogue's uh, leader's house or among the observant Jews and so forth, how perhaps they would have uh, been viewed as unclean or they would have been viewed as somehow under divine discipline as uh, reason for their blindness and whatnot. Anyway, we don't have a lot of those uh, stories, but the fact that they found him at a place where he might not otherwise be expected, like Jairus's house, is uh, at the very least uh, noteworthy. Now he comes out of the house. They call out to him, and then they have to follow him for an unknown period of time. Because you'll notice when he entered the house. Well, which house is that then? See in verse 28. So whatever distance he traveled through the city of Capernaum after leaving Jairus's house, he then comes to another house. And it's not entirely clear. We know that he uh, made arrangements for his mother and his brothers and his siblings to have a place to live there in Capernaum. We also know that he stayed with Peter on another occasion where Peter's mother-in-law was uh, able to, uh, after he healed her, that she uh, was able to wait on them and serve them. And so forth that we don't know he didn't the Lord didn't have a house of his own, we're told, because uh, the, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. We know that he himself had no uh, home ownership. But as far as whatever this house goes, we're not uh, entirely clear. Now, a couple of other observations we want to make on this. This is Matthew's first written healing of the blind. This is Matthew's first written healing of the blind. We want to observe the firsts when we come across them in Matthew because they are arranged uh, topically. They are arranged uh, theologically. Matthew is, is not a chronological gospel. You might have noticed as we go through in the, in the various synoptic records that when you glance at the Luke column, for example, it's very sequential. When you glance at the Mark column, it's highly sequential. Uh, when you glance at the Matthew column, though, it's all over the place. We've already, to this point, here we are in, in chapter 9, but prior to this, I see chapter 8, chapter 13, chapter 12, chapter 11, um, back to chapter 8, chapter 5, chapter 12, chapter 9, chapter 8, chapter 4, chapter 8, chapter 4. So, and that's just going backward through the sequence. We'll, we'll continue to experience this on in the future. After we wrap up the details here in chapter 9, we're going to jump ahead to chapter 13. We'll come back to chapter 10 and then chapter 14 and so forth. Um, there's even a very late episode coming up uh, after chapter 19 in Matthew that will throw us all the way back to chapter 8. And, uh, and those are the kind of things that, that might drive some people kind of bonkers. But we're relaxed about it, particularly when we recognize the very Jewish nature of Matthew. We recognize that 
uh, in, his, in the Hebrew mindset, in the Jewish mindset of this gospel and of, of this particular author, the idea of a chronology and the idea of a sequence is absolutely unnecessary. <laughs> Bothers us to, to, to smithereens. Doesn't bother them at all. Stop to consider the, the nature of a language that doesn't even have a past, present, and future tense, and then maybe you'll uh, start to appreciate some of those other issues. So Matthew is not designed chronologically. How is it designed? The Gospel of Matthew in presenting Christ as the King. The Gospel of Matthew in presenting a lot of features, and it builds on those features. And so there are stages and there are steps, and the healing of a blind man is a part of that. The healing of a demoniac is a part of that. And then uh, other things that are gradually building to the undeniable conclusion that he is the Messiah, he is the King of Israel, that he must be accepted as such. And the children then singing Hosanna on, uh, on Palm Monday uh, really forms a crescendo for the Gospel of Matthew. Here is the king, humbly riding on a colt, entering into the city of Jerusalem. All right, Palm Sunday, if you want to hold to the Catholic tradition, I, I believe, chronologically speaking, you either have to have a Palm Monday or you have a Missing Wednesday. And I don't like the Missing Wednesday idea, so I have Palm Monday. Since we have such excruciating detail on the Passion Week, the idea of the Silent Wednesday is just insane. I don't know why people keep insisting on it. They, the only reason they insist on it is because they want to have uh, the, the triumphal entry on a Sunday so they can you know, have a, a feature of their liturgical calendar for the centuries which follow. No, it was a Monday that he entered into Jerusalem, and we have no problem with that. All right, Matthew's first recorded healing of the blind. There have, however, been previous chronological healings. Previous chronological healings of the blind. Previous chronological healings of the blind include mention made by Christ to John the Baptist. Now, that's not referenced in Matthew until chapter 11, Matthew 11:5. 11, but in the parallel in Luke 7, 21 and 22, it's really clear that it's an episode that actually precedes this one. It's an episode that precedes this one. In fact, it's episode 20 in the Galilean ministry. So it was 11 episodes ago that we encountered this. As we read it, in Ma I'll stay in Matthew just because it's less page flipping. But Matthew 11, when the baptizer sent him word saying, uh, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Uh, in Luke, not only do we have mention made of it, but we have the recorded incidents of it. So there have been previous healings of the blind. There was another episode. Uh, when Christ referenced it in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Uh, Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. He's quoting from Isaiah. And it's a text that Glenn Carnegie had us in on Sunday night, if you recall. And in Luke, let me get to this one, Luke 4. In Luke 4:18, the um, he's in a synagogue and they handed him the scroll to read. And he starts reading it, and he's reading from the portion in Isaiah. And uh, he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And he took the book of the prophet Isaiah, 
I'm sorry, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And the, and the, the discussion Sunday night was when Isaiah was writing this, how did it apply? And did it apply to Isaiah himself, or was there no application to Isaiah? Was this entirely prophetic? I believe it was both. It had literal application to Isaiah, who uh, was anointed by the Spirit of the Lord and who had a ministry uh, as a shadow and a prefigure of Christ. But truly, it had a future fulfillment for Christ some 700 years later, and that's what's being spoken of here when Jesus declares this. So he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. See, and he actually cut off his reading in the midst of a verse there in, in, in Isaiah. But he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the reason why he stopped reading there was because the very next line, had he continued in Isaiah, would have talked about the day of vengeance and of wrath and, and a passage that then turns to a second Advent fulfillment. So he stopped in the middle of the verse to where he had only addressed the first Advent portions of that Isaiah text. And he deliberately stopped before he got to the... If he had done one more word or one more phrase, he would have been in a, in a second Advent um, realm. So he stopped right there, closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so we understand, hey, why did he stop reading right there? It was to demonstrate the distinctions between first Advent and second Advent, and how you have to rightly divide the word of truth, sometimes even in the same verse. One final illustration of the healing of the blind that's preceded this chronologically is in Matthew 12:22. In Matthew 12:22, there is a blind and mute demoniac. Matthew 12:22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that mute man spoke and saw. So now chronologically, we place that before our chapter this morning in, in chapter 9. But you can kind of see the progression in Matthew's gospel as he records these, the healing of the blind, the healing of a mute demoniac, and then the healing of blind and mute, kind of combined in the demoniac. And so it's, it builds in a, in a progression. Anyway, we don't, we don't have struggles with that. We don't view them as contradictory, particularly since Matthew never made a claim for chronological sequence like Luke specifically does when he starts off his gospel. Actually, it's a wonderful testimony to the authenticity of the gospel in that we recognize that there was no uh, artificial monkey business going on in an attempt to you know, get all the facts straight and get all the details lined up with one another. It uh, testifies to the authenticity of each gospel account. Now, secondly, their address to him as the son of David entails an understanding of the promised Messiah as the coming king. Their address to him as the son of David entails an understanding of the promised Messiah as the coming king. And we really want to make sure we have a handle on this, because if we don't, I... I it would break my heart to finish a Life of Christ series that lasts five years, six years, eight years, however long this class goes, and to have a completed class and a room full of people that, that have no idea what Messiah is all about. So we're going to take the time this morning to make sure we're solid on it. We have terms. We use Messiah so 
we throw it around so cheaply these days that the idea of a Messiah is just uh, like a hero. You know, a Messiah is a, is a rescuer, is a hero. Somebody that, uh, that uh, you know, does a great thing for you. That we say, oh, there's our Messiah. You know, Vince Young was the Messiah. Can you imagine? I mean, even if you are that cavalier about the terminology, you're really drifting towards blasphemy at that point. If you're, if you're going to use Messiah in that loose of a term, you know, is he a hero? Is he a superhero? Is the, do we use the term for just simply a rescuer, a deliverer? The, the idea, though, that if we use it as a rescuer or a deliverer, we're mixing our terminology. Because sozo, soteria, salvation, is the idea behind rescue and deliverance. Messiah in Hebrew, or Christ in Greek, doesn't speak of deliverance, doesn't speak of salvation, not at all. It speaks of anointing. And that's what Glenn was dealing with Sunday night. And so, you know, if you, uh, if you missed that, I would urge you, get the MP3 and review what the Hebrews class was all about on Sunday night. You know, I mean, these classes, the Holy Spirit uses these classes to really dovetail together and then communicate a message. I I find it extraordinary how they they fit together in a a wonderful way. And, you know, might be folks decide to to skip out on it because it's somebody besides the pastor and they feel that, oh, well, you know, if it's not the pastor teaching, I don't have to listen to it. But I'm I'm telling you, these classes are fitting together in in a wonderful way. So what we had Sunday night talking about anointing, is, uh, is exactly what we're dealing with here in terms of the title Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, the one who has been smeared, the one who has had the oil applied to the point where they are identified as being consecrated, anointed, dedicated for God's holy purpose. Now, they say, have mercy on us, son of David. That's in Matthew 9. In verse 27, the title Son of David is specific, recognizing his legitimacy, his claim. Okay, his claim. What is that? Something outside? Okay, at least it's not inside, goodness. His claim to the throne, Son of David. He is the heir. He is the legitimate heir to the throne, and that is significant. They've been waiting for the Son of David to reclaim the throne. When is the last time a son of David has been on the throne? As far as these guys are concerned, or even for us today, we can answer, we have the same answer today they had then. There has not been a king on the throne since Jehoiakim, or Jehoiachin, and depending on his legitimacy, because the, the curse of Jeconiah actually removes him. But uh, since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and carried away, uh, you know, leveled Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, carried away Israel in captivity, they have not had a Davidic king on the throne. And they they will not have a Davidic king on the throne until Jesus Christ returns in Second Advent. So that, that goes back to 586 B.C. or 587 B.C. for the destruction of Jerusalem. There has not been a son of David on the throne. When they came back from their captivity, they didn't have a king. They had a governor. Zerubbabel was a governor, not a king. And the, uh, certainly the, uh, you can't count the, the time of the Maccabees and the Hasmonean era there. They weren't even from the tribe of Judah. They were priests. They were Levites that made a throne for themselves and, and, uh, and assumed both the kingship as well as the priesthood during the, uh, the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What a, a horrible, blasphemous time for them to, to take the, the throne as well as the priesthood. They had no business doing that. 
Uh, remarkably, of course, the Jews today look back at that as a golden era, a wonderful high point in the history of Judaism and the history of the Jewish people. And it was tragic, absolutely wrong, for the, the priestly line to take a throne for themselves. So uh, there is a throne. It is the throne of David. It will be the son of David seated on that throne. And that's uh, highly emphasized. Look at all these references here in Matthew. Turn back to Matthew 1.1. How does this gospel even begin? Matthew 1.1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is one of the first verses that Arnold Fruchtenbaum ever read as a teenager. He was, of course, raised very strictly Jewish. And uh, some Christian uh, associates were trying to talk to him about things of Christ in the New Testament. And they uh, handed him this Bible and you know, this New Testament, have him start reading it. And the uh, first thing he noticed was, wow, this is really a Jewish book. <laughs> you know, when you read the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, you, you can't get more Jewish than that. And that was his first impression. So he started reading it even more. Um, notice these other expressions over in chapter 12, Matthew 12:23. demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? See, a recognition that when the son of David came, when the Messiah came, there would be the attesting signs and miracles. Why not? That's what all the prophets spoke of. We just looked at Isaiah 61. All the prophets were anticipating, many of the prophets were anticipating that these uh, would be the marks of their coming Messiah. Uh, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd uh, sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The recognition of his Messiahship equated with his sonship as the greater son of David. Next chapter over, chapter 21. Here's the triumphal entry. 21, 9 and 15. The crowd's going ahead of him. Well, let's see. Um, we understand he gives them instructions. He says... Uh, in verse 2, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, and tie them and bring them to me. I really want to meet that believer someday. There was a believer that understood that was counting the days, according to Daniel chapter 9, counting the days, and they'd counted out 69 of the prophetic years, uh, the prophetic seven-year period of time, and uh, to the day they had the, uh, the colt here prepared, the donkey prepared. And uh, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. He's got the capacity and the doctrinal understanding to recognize that week 69 is complete, according to Daniel's 70-week prophecy. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and this now is Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And the crowds were going ahead of them shouting, 
uh, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. We addressed this uh, a couple of weeks back in Revelation when we talked about the Hosanna chorus and, and why this is significant coming from the Psalms. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Same chapter, that's verse 9 down to verse uh, 15. Uh, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And he said to them, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? All right, uh, last one in Matthew is chapter 22 and verse 42. You might expect that this is significant in the gospel of Matthew, and you're right. Matthew is the gospel of the king. These guys keep trying to quiz him and find a way where they can trap him, and he answers every question they ever have for him. So then he turns the tables on him and says, okay, I've got a question for you. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach in the Hebrew, the anointed one? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Very good. That was their expectation. But then he has another question for them. He said to them, well, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? If he's his descendant, if he's his heir, if he's his son, why does David in the spirit under verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, remember, call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? It's a powerful text. And it's one for which they had no answer. Here he is referring to his descendant as my Lord. Well, how does that happen? Well, now, you and I understand, of course, because of the preexistent glory of God the Son. We understand it because of the nature of who God the Son is, who the Lord Jesus Christ is, and so forth. Uh, but the Pharisees, they, they acknowledged the title Son of David, they hated the title Son of Man, and they accused him as bla for blasphemy, calling himself the Son of God. And yet he was true in all three camps. So if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. They said, okay, we're, we're done with this. <laughs> All right. We just lose every time. All right. Now, Old Testament foundations. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 7, and there's a Chronicles parallel to this, but we'll just leave it with 2 Samuel 7. And we'll get an idea for how we can observe the dual nature of prophecy. Second Samuel 7, um, 12 and following. And this is in the context of David's desire to build a temple. He's being told, no, you're not going to be allowed to build a temple. Appreciate the thought, but it's not your work assignment to do. Someone else will do it. And uh, we have a, a promise that's made here. Uh, you, you wanted to build a house for me. Appreciate the thought. That's not your work assignment. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a house for you. And it's going to be an eternal house. 
He says in verse 11, the Lord also declares to you, that's Yahweh declares to you, that Yahweh will make a house for you. When your days are complete, remember each one of us has X number of days, and when they expire, they expire, and our job is done. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Now, right away, we, we have questions in our mind. Is he talking about, you know, the very next descendant? Is he talking about Solomon or is he talking about a future heir yet to come? In other words, is he talking about Christ or are both actually in view? Notice verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Again, we can see dual application in this because Solomon truly builds the temple. Solomon is the heir of David and the, the line of Solomon and the, the, um, the, uh, the line of Christ proceeding through Solomon, at least through one of the genealogies, the legal line from father to son passes through Solomon. Um, we can see a Solomon fulfillment there, but we can also see a Jesus Christ fulfillment there. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Uh, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of man and the strokes of the sons of man. Now, wait a minute. That can't be Jesus Christ, because he accomplishes no iniquity whatsoever. Right? Are you following? That, you, you can't see Christ in verse 13, because the iniquity is there. So we have... We have, we, there, there's two applications, and we want to make sure that we can handle this. And this is not uncommon in prophecy. So if we can get a handle on it here, we'll do well in lots of other passages also. So yes, we're looking, immediately we're looking at Solomon. And you talk about a guy that commits iniquity, <laughs> no question. All right? But he is still a shadow of an even greater fulfillment down the road. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Now, the shadow and the reality, not everything from the shadow carries forward to the reality. We understand that. Obviously, the iniquity part doesn't carry forward to the reality. The shadow had the iniquity, but that doesn't necessarily carry forward. Not, not 100% of every shadow carries forward in any shadow. You know, if you look at the tabernacle, all the shadow doctrine in the tabernacle, uh, you know, the, 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 the lampstand that was a type of Christ and so forth, do, does that mean that, that Christ was plated with gold? <laughs> no. We realize that shadows paint a picture. They point forward. There are elements that are fulfilled, but not every nitty-gritty detail. That would defy the purpose of a shadow. So it is here with Solomon. This passage is primarily addressing Solomon, but it has its greatest realization, of course, in Jesus Christ. Notice, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of man and strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And I think the reference to Saul there helps us to narrow the scope quite a bit when, when we realize that the, the, the prophetic message here through Nathan to, to David is really looking at the very next generation, who the following king is going to be, because it mentions the immediately preceding king, Saul, right? Saul was the king immediately preceding. Solomon here is going to be the king immediately following. And, uh, and so forth. Remember, there is no Solomon at this point. Solomon doesn't get born until the adultery chapter. So, um, which, by the way, is the reason why the, the division of the kingdom, the civil war, Israel, ten tribes going north, two tribes staying south, that doesn't happen in Solomon's lifetime because of this promise right here. That Solomon would be promised that uh, kingdom 
uh, and it would not be taken from him. And so because of this verse here, the civil war is reserved for Rehoboam's generation, and then the, uh, the kingdom is split. Finally, then verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, that is an unconditional promise. That's an unconditional covenant. So when Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem, uh, flattens the temple, plunders everything, and puts an end to the Davidic line, the Davidic throne, is that a permanent end? It cannot be. It cannot be because this passage says that uh, it's eternal. Your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So we understand that the Davidic throne is presently vacated, but it does have a future. It will be seated. And the scripture describes how it will be seated. Scripture describes why it's vacated. Scripture describes the present course called the age, call it the age, but the, uh, the uh, dominion of the Gentiles must run its course. The times of the Gentiles must be complete. And so... Uh, we have the description of it here in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Now, you've got to understand how pivotal this promise is. I've gone through many times with you in the past on the Genesis 3:15 promise, the protoevangelism, the seed of the woman promise. How many times have we gone through it? And I hope I've gone through it enough that you could stand up here and do it yourself. But we have the seed of the woman promise in Genesis 3, and then just track all through Scripture all the, the various uh, references that go back to that and how it was then further defined and further narrowed and the scope was further limited and all the things there. That is, that is a great study. This is another one. Track the Davidic covenant promise. And how many times is that referred to? How many times does that become a focus for later messages, for later developments? All right, and I'll just give you a clue. I'll give you three of them here this morning, including Psalm 89, Psalm 132, and Acts 2. And you'll start to see why this is so powerful and why it is that churches today go off the deep end when they throw this all out of their Bible. So Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Gotta love Psalm 89. 89's been a lucky number for me for, I don't know why. Where was I in 89? I was, I was in Germany in 89. It's a Psalm of Ethan. A masculine of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the loving kindnesses of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You've got to understand, Psalm 89 is so powerful. If uh, we do a, um, an in-depth angelology at some point, there are depths of angelology in Psalm 89 that require extraordinary work. And, um, I mean, you can just see glimpses of it all throughout this chapter here. I'm going to try to avoid it and it'd be a temptation too great for me to bear i'll launch into the next 20 minutes of angels and not get back but from host to mighty ones to gods to uh other references here there is a lot godly ones and mighty ones there's a lot in this chapter crushing rahab in verse 10 you yourself crushed rahab you know is that the jericho harlot what's that <laughs> Why do we have Rahab in verse 10? What is this? Oh, this is a deep psalm. I love this psalm. Anyway, 
Stay focused. Uh, <laughs> again, verse 2, I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. See, God has a plan that's not just on the earth, but also in the heavens. He has an earthly nation, which is the nation of Israel, with a, with a throne, the Davidic throne. He has a heavenly people as well. Now, in the Old Testament, that's not yet revealed. The church is still a mystery, but we can at least see the dual nature here of on the earth and in the heavens. Verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have made a covenant with my chosen oh we need to grab a hold of this or we don't understand election we don't understand what god's sovereign election is in christ who's his chosen one jesus christ god the son is his chosen one i have sworn to david my servant i have sworn to david my servant so you see how important that promise we spent the time to look at second samuel 7 verse 12 and the surrounding context of that that davidic covenant is pivotal I have sworn to David my servant. So does that mean he can lie? Remember, he's already veracity. He's already the God who cannot lie, and he makes an oath. The God who cannot lie makes an oath and makes eternal promises. How powerful is that? Well, it obviously was significant to Ethan the Ezraite. It was a significant feature of Psalm 89. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Salah. It is a feature of God's faithfulness that this Davidic covenant must be fulfilled. A son of David will be seated on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem, reigning over the nations of this earth. That is yet future. The church cannot replace Israel in any shape, way, shape, manner, or form. All right. It goes on. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to Yahweh? Who among the sons of the mighty is like Yahweh? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. O Yahweh, Elohim of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Yahweh. And it goes on to describe some powerful things that relate to the divine council and the mighty angels that are indeed called gods. At that point in time. All right. Psalm 132, verse 11. Psalm 132 and verse 11. This was a song of ascents. One of the psalms that was uh, sung as they went up to the temple for their pilgrimage. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf... On David's behalf. Why Why do you mention David's behalf? Well, because there's unconditional promise that was made to David. Think about it in terms of when we offer our prayers and we say in Jesus' name, amen, that we are making our requests or we are offering our prayers and we are stating that the authority for our even being there is not on our own authority but on his merit. See, consider the the Jewish... Uh, opportunity in the old testament to be able to offer prayers not in jesus name amen how do they pray in jesus name amen uh before christ but they can pray in david's name and what do we mean by that for david's sake it says here on david's behalf offering up a prayer and saying on david's behalf reminding the lord that i'm not here on my own merit but you made unconditional covenant promises to david 
and to Abraham, the unconditional covenant is to Abraham, see. And so they could offer their prayers. They wouldn't say, you know, dear Heavenly Father, and uh, blah, 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 and in Jesus' name, amen. They could say, in the name of Abraham, or in the covenant of Abraham, in the promises you've made to David. And that would serve the functional equivalent of what we do today in our prayers when we say, in Jesus' name, amen. I believe it. Let it be done. So, remember... O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And, of course, the mighty one of Jacob reminds us of the Abrahamic covenant, confirmed to Isaac, confirmed to Jacob. And so uh, these other uh, things that come into it here. Now, the mighty one of Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice there's uh, the promise of a dwelling place until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob, it says in verse 5. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. What's Ephrathah? Ephrathah is the Old Testament name for Bethlehem. Ephrathah is the place where Rachel was buried. Ephrathah is where the Christ will be born. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the field of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your godly ones sing for joy. Notice again in verse 10, for the sake of David, your servant. Going back to the Davidic covenant, you see how important it was from the moment it was uttered for the rest of Israel's history? Do not turn away the face of your anointed, the anointed one. The Lord has sworn to David. A truth from which he will not turn back. How can he lie? He's the, first of all, he's the God who cannot lie. And then he takes an oath. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set up your throne. And then notice, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons shall also sit upon your throne forever. And it's interesting, the Davidic line, every single one of them from David down, or not from David, but from Solomon down to uh, Jehoiachin, each one of them was compared back to David. If they obeyed the Lord, if they were faithful, then they were compared to David. They would say that he uh, walked with the Lord like David is his father, and their, and their nation was blessed. If they were faithless, again, the description was David. It says that he did not obey the Lord God with all his heart, unlike his father David, and so Judah was in for discipline at that point. David was the standard for all the earthly sons that then followed, and ultimately they were swept away into captivity. Uh, Jehoiachin was swept away, and that ended the Davidic line, at least for the time being. All right, now the last one we see is over in the book of Acts, and yet it's, uh, it's a quote from uh, the Old Testament. And this, very important, because this is the hinge that launches us into the church age. Acts chapter 2, we have this hinge now, recognizing that the age, the dispensation of Israel has now been set aside, and yet it's not abandoned. And in the very chapter where the church age begins, Peter delivers this message. And so, uh, again, we're comfortable with... Uh, with um, Acts chapter 2 here and the uh, recognition of the group in the upper room and the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and then the reflection of that with uh, tongues and the, the sign that that was to the Jewish people. All of this taking place, of course, some of the critics thought they were drunk 
And uh, they said, no, we're filled with the Spirit, and here's what you need to pay attention to. But let's go down to verse... Um, uh, you recognize that Peter's the one speaking from verse 14. And he says, uh, we're not drunk in verse 15. And then he quotes Joel, starting in verse 17. And then he says in verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene. It's vital that we recognize this because the church has now begun. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. The church has now begun right here in this chapter. And he has an opportunity now for evangelism to these Jewish people. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Who did all those miracles? Did Jesus do all those miracles? It says God did them through him, just like he does to us today. It is God who is at work in you, both the will and the do of his good pleasure. Remember, we have gifts, ministries, and effects, and the effects are what God does through us for his good pleasure. Uh, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Great verse that highlights God's sovereignty. When you want to ask the debate, was it the Jews that crucified Christ or the Gentiles that crucified Christ? The Jews or the Romans? Was it the human beings or was it the fallen angels? I got a verse that says the rulers and authorities of this age crucified the Lord of glory because they did not understand the wisdom which was from above. Or you can look at this saying, you know what? Regardless of who the human instruments were, it was according to God the Father's sovereign plan. It was his gift of love. God the Father so loved the church that he gave his only begotten son. That's who crucified Christ was God the Father. So this man delivered over by the predetermined plan of foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross, so there's the Jewish culpability, by the hands of godless men, there's the Gentile culpability of the Roman soldiers, and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Remember, he submitted to it. He suffered it. He accepted the wrath. But death had no power over him because in the end he was innocent. He himself accepted the sin but was not the sinner. For David says, now notice, David. It all goes back to David. David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet David and recorded for us in the Psalms. And Peter is making a very brilliant point here when he says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So when David said, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay, was he talking about himself? No, not for a minute. David died, he was buried, his body decayed, and here they are a thousand years later. Um, this psalm that David wrote was not speaking of himself. It was speaking of his greater son. It was speaking of the coming Christ. And so, verse 30, because he was a prophet, Prophet by gift, king by office. We understand that. And he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath 
to seat one of his descendants on the throne. See, there's the promise, and David was convinced of it. See, God cannot lie. He's not going to lie to David. I will not lie to David. There's, I didn't put it on here. There is a verse that says, is he going to lie to David? The answer, obviously, is no. So, so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God, raised up again to which we are all witnesses. And it goes on, and the gospel message from that point forward becomes the testimony to the resurrection. Not only did he die according to the scriptures, but he was buried according to the scriptures, that he rose again according to the scriptures, and that he was seated at his right hand. Peter goes on to point out more of David's writings and the fact that it was not David who ascended into heaven, but as David wrote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's where Jesus Christ is presently seated until God the Father accomplishes the what we understand in the whole doctrinal study on Operation Footstool. All right, so there's a good assortment of passages. Let me just find, there's, there's one more that's nagging me in the uh, back of my mind. A passage that talks about lying to David. Ah, Psalm 89:35. So we were just there a moment ago. Psalm 89. What did I give you in Psalm 89? Oh, I gave you three should have given you 35 in that same context. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. I will not lie to David. You realize every Christian today that subscribes, every pastor today, every theological school today that ascribes to replacement theology is denying that one verse right there that says, I will not lie to David. Because they've thrown out every promise to David. They've thrown out the, the, uh, God's future purpose for the earthly nation of Israel. They've replaced it with the church. And then they try to convince themselves and you and everybody else that, oh, no, 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 God didn't lie. He just spoke to them allegorically and they took it wrong. Yeah. Run that one by your wife and see if uh, she buys it. You know, oh, I didn't lie to you, sweetheart. I, just, I was just speaking metaphorically. And you, you took it wrong. <laughs> right? If that's the promise you're making, that's not a promise. That's a willful deception right from the beginning. If you intended it to be allegorical with no true uh, literal meaning, then that's not a promise. That's a lie. And if the people who took it that way took it that way and you let them take it that way, then you allowed the lie to go forth. And in the case of... Um, the promise he made to David, he allowed every psalmist and every prophet after that, including Peter now on the day of Pentecost, he allowed those lies to be perpetuated throughout the New Testament even. No, you cannot buy into replacement theology because God cannot lie to David. Cannot and will not. So add Psalm 89.35 to your written notes, and I will try to do likewise if I remember to make that correction before... These notes get printed. All right. Next observation. Jesus delayed. Let's get back to these uh, blind guys in Capernaum. Matthew chapter 9. Say, Pastor, I forgot. Where were we now? (laughs) We're in Matthew chapter 9. Two blind guys are chasing Jesus saying, Son of David. 
And we spent 40 minutes on Son of David. Have mercy on us, Son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able? It's uh, the, the wonderful testimony to faith is that he is able. No question that he is able. The question is, is he willing? What is the will of God? And we can, we can understand that in every prayer request we offer up, every health request. He's able to heal my brother-in-law of his colon cancer. Absolutely, he's able to do that. But will he? Is it his plan? Is it his purpose? Is it part of the design for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ? See, I don't doubt his ability. I just don't understand his purpose. Other things as far as financial tests or marriage tests or anything else. He's able, absolutely. And our faith is grounded in his ability, that he is able. The value of our faith is not in how fervently we hold it, but his ability to accomplish that which he has promised. And so he says, do you believe, that is, do you pursue, do you have faith? Are you operating on a faith basis that I am able to do this? That's a, uh, that's a neat description there as well. But he delays, he waits till he gets indoors. It's like the privacy that he, uh, that he orchestrated for the raising of Jairus' daughter. And he, he chased the, the flute players out and the mourners and all that noisy crowd of disorder and chased all the other disciples out except for Peter, James, and John and, and the, the parents of that girl. And he had that, that raising of that girl in a very private setting. Likewise, the healing of these two blind guys. He didn't just stop there on the street and heal them. Took them indoors. Did it behind closed doors. And so um, we're going to see more of this as he's uh, shifting away from the public uh, aspects to the more private aspects of his teaching and of his ministry. So um, waits until he reaches the privacy of the house that he was headed to. He asked them to profess their faith. When he asked, do you believe, he is asking for the profession of their faith. Jesus asked them to profess their faith and heals their blindness, notice, according to their faith. According to their faith. And oh my. We're going to bump up against the clock here on this, and I hate to leave it at an awkward spot. He asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? See, some people are hesitant when it comes to professions of faith, and they, they, uh, there's a reluctance in some people's attitudes to, to push this, to ask another person to, to do this, and say, oh, well, that's, that's intrusion in their privacy, and, and, and that's between them and the Lord, and, and so on and so forth. I don't see anything unbiblical about asking for that profession of faith. Why? What's, what's so intrusive about that? What violates privacy in that regard? What's unbiblical about that? If, if, in fact, they are born-again believers in Jesus Christ through faith in his finished work on the cross, then they should delight in that testimony. It ought to be a feature of their new birth that would cause them to, uh, to be able to speak of that. And I think there are countless scriptures that address that, that remember your former manner of life and remember uh, the, and, and testify to the, to the grace that saved you. And so the declaration of this, are you, do you believe? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And so I don't see anything wrong with, with asking that. And, and in times where I have 
asked or or pushed or otherwise uh, uh, tried to, to get a profession, when I fail to get that profession of faith, to me that speaks volumes. If I'm talking to somebody about their salvation, they assume that they're going to go to heaven when they die. Well, why is that? And, well, it's because of, you know, they're, they're, they're good churchgoers. Or, you know, they're, they're Catholics. Of course they're going to go to heaven. Or Lutheran or whatever they are. And they've got this idea that, well, I'm, I'm a good person. See? Or I go to church. Or I was baptized. That's what I get most of all. When I talk about salvation, they say, well, yeah, yeah, I was baptized when I was eight. And I just stop right there. I didn't ask if you were baptized. I asked if you have eternal life. Or use different expressions. Have you been adopted into the royal family of God? Or have you been, have you, uh, been regenerated? I, I try to use phrases that if, if, if they don't have teaching or if they don't know what I'm talking about, that's a big clue. But what do you mean regenerated? Okay. Or have you been adopted in the royal family of God? What are you talking about? Well, if, if, if you die tonight, why would God let you into heaven? Oh, you know, I, I, I tithe <laughs> or whatever. You know, like it can be bought. So if I can't get a profession of faith, I keep working at it. I keep working at it. And I ask him, I ask him, well, why is, you know, if you die tonight and you're standing at the pearly gates and St. Peter says, uh, you know, why should I let you in here? Now, that's a, I admit, that's a pathetic hypothetical because that never happens. There's, you know, St. Peter's not posted there with a password or some kind of a pass-fail kind of thing with a, you know, a little lever that drops you down the chute to, to hell if you didn't make it through the gates, but we can kind of use the imagery because it's kind of out there in common thought, and, and I, I want to hear, I want to hear the person say, Peter's not going to ask me that question, I have eternal life, I'm an adopted son of God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to be, I'm going to be ushered immediately to the presence of the Lord, and if they can give me that, then I'm confident of their salvation, but if they can't give me a testimony of how they received eternal life, then then uh, I'm just going to go on the assumption that they're not saved. I'm going to make sure that I give them a gospel. Give them the gospel, I should say. All right. Well, we will uh, come back to this next week because he asked for that. Then he says, it shall be done for you according to your faith. And unfortunately, this kind of then becomes the pattern for the the holy rollers and the faith healers and the the groups today that they try to tie in healing to the uh to the faith of the recipient in other words if the healing doesn't work they can say oh well you just didn't have enough faith and since you didn't have enough faith the healing didn't work and so forth and they use this one text to validate that that whole philosophy which is uh unfortunate so we'll spend some time on that as well any questions before i close in prayer any thoughts questions anything with these two blind guys anything on that davidic information just um well, bring it up tonight at our question time, then, if, if there's anything that, that's bothering you on that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and the opportunity we have to study and a recognition of your grace, eternal plan of the ages and all the details from Alpha to Omega, including the uh, Davidic throne and the role of that Davidic throne uh, for all eternity upon this earth uh, in the context of your earthly nation in the midst of other earthly nations. Father, we thank you for your plan for the church as a heavenly people. Again, for all eternity, the bride of Christ. And we thank you for the clear distinctions between Israel and the church, uh, the clear distinctions between law and grace, clear distinctions between Old Testament and New Testament. Pray that you would continue to equip us to rightly divide the word of truth. And on that basis, Father, that we might stand presenting ourselves as workmen needing not to be ashamed. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.